What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Rideshare Rodeo, gig economy news and interviews, sponsored by Para and ParaWorks. I'm your host, SJ. It's time to get it on. What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Rideshare Rodeo audio podcast adventure covering rideshare, delivery, shopping, and all gig economy work. I'm your host, Steve, and let's get into it, guys. Uh, first things first, we got a, we got a few things we're going to go through today. Um, the first piece I want to talk about uh, is the Ghost Menu Massacre. Uh, it's been going on for a couple weeks now. Uh, what What it is, is it's Uber is getting rid of all of the extra ghost kitchens. So the virtual ghost kitchens are fine or kitchens that are operating as a ghost kitchen only, or actually as a hybrid where they're serving the restaurant and a ghost kitchen that is putting out food. What Uber is cracking down on. And I, I gotta say guys, I'm going to give a rare shout out to the gig giant Uber. This is very rare of me. You know this. I don't do this especially on the audio podcast. I usually have a lot of stuff to say on Uber, but this is actually, I, I don't even see what the, where potentially, usually I can look at something and say, oh, they're doing that for PR or, oh, they're doing that. It's not really to help people. It's this. And I just, I've got a bad spin on it. But this is just win, 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 win. We've been talking about these ghost menus for a while. Uh, when Travis Kalanick, in, um, you know, kind of, I guess, you know, I'm sure other people were doing this, and we know of people who were operating kitchens out of their house without uh, proper licensing and stuff and getting on these platforms. But when Travis Kalanick was taking, when he left Uber and took the idea to make ghost kitchens, it was a much different idea. It was actually creating locations. This was still pandemic times, obviously, and around there. And so what he was doing was he was saying, let's just have buildings where the drivers come and get the food. Almost like fast food, but for restaurants that aren't fast food. And it was a great idea, you know, but I think somehow, like most things, it got it got um, twisted around and people saw angles, on, and companies saw angles on how to take advantage of it. And now what we have is we have Uber Eats, uh, removing 8,000 restaurants from the app. So you have places like Chuck E. Cheese, where Chuck E. Cheese also operates as a pizza place out of their kitchen. And I'm, excuse me, I'm forgetting their name, but it starts with a P. Uh, it's not Chuck E. Cheese, but it starts with a P. And so if you go on Uber Eats, DoorDash, or any of these apps and you see it, you could see it as this uh, this other place. But really what you're getting is Chuck E. Cheese pizza. Now, in my opinion... Um, Chuck E. Cheese is good for one thing. It's good for when your kids are very young. Let them get some energy out. It absolutely, probably last on its list is its quality of pizza. Um, at least for me personally, I think for adults, it's just not 
I don't even know if for the kids it's that great, but regardless, um, Uber Eats is actually removing some of these. And a good example would be like Denny's. So Denny's had like three kitchens operating out of there. One of them was called like grilled cheese something, or it was based around, I think, the grilled cheese motto. Another one was something else, and then they had Denny's. But here's the thing, and here's the problem, and here's why I'm glad they're cracking down on it. Because let's say you don't like, you really want a grilled cheese, but you don't, you really don't like Denny's grilled cheese. It's one of your, in fact, it's, you'd rather just make it at home with just the worst ingredients. It's not to your liking, you hate it. Well, what if you accidentally order from one of the two ghost kitchens that are operating out of the exact same kitchen as Denny's? So again, if you, you know, a lot of times I know that Dashers and Uber Eats drivers and Grubhub and all that stuff, I know that we can decipher this. I think some customers are getting turned on to this too because they're like, why are these three locations all in this in this building? And especially people who know their area well because they're like, that's just a Denny's. What's going on? Um, so maybe they think that, well, maybe they've just got something marked wrong or something. No, there are, there were... There are on DoorDash, and there were, and I'm sure there still are a few that they're trying to find, but they've already got rid of 8,000, and there were some on Uber Eats that were doing this too. So there are still some of these doing these, but what they're trying to do is like you can't sell a Denny's grilled cheese at like now as two other restaurants, all making the same exact grilled cheese with the same ingredients in the same kitchen and send it out to all three of those ghost kitchen um orders you need to you need to pick you need to pick your lane and stay in it you know um i'm all for the ghost kitchen situation i thought it was a great idea especially when it came about and then oddly like most things in the gig economy it just didn't build quick enough and it was like a year into the pandemic when everybody was like hey let's no let's really get on this and you saw the company starting to go at it i mean really what we needed was like april April was still confusing, but like May, June, 2020, we really needed ghost kitchens to just boom. Cause that would have saved so many people's restaurants. Uh, so many of the little guys that we know went out of business. Um, so there's that. And, uh, I'm really glad to see them doing it. You guys know that it's a lot, it's very hard to find some good news in the gig economy sometimes. So I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely stoked they're doing this. Now, let's move into robo-taxis in San Francisco. Okay, guys, there were a ton of articles out last week and just in general over the past couple of months. You know that robotics, um, autonomous, um, that kind of space is very interesting to me. And I don't give you guys timelines like every PR stunt that these companies pull. In fact, I I usually demolish their timelines. And if you've listened to past audio podcast episodes, you know I've taken articles that talk about timelines, and I've brought in experts in the VTOL, in the autonomous field, that kind of stuff, and asked them, listen, I know you don't work for such and such. I don't want to pick on anybody, even though I do. <laughs> I know you don't work for this company or that company autonomous, but um, are these dates right? Like 2025, 2030? And they're like, no. And, and, and in fact, most of the experts, even a couple that I've had on the podcast have worked for these companies, um, Waymo especially in Alphabet. So here's the thing. They, they have said that, no, 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 no. We, I mean, they've honestly, they've actually put it out there as, look, it would, it would be, it would just be throwing darts 
for us to tell you a date. I mean, we we have no idea. And as we know, and hopefully uh, those of you joining um, the audio podcast here, as well as all of the other social um, platforms that we're on, hopefully you're really starting to catch on to the audio podcast. Uh, we see the growth. I see the growth is coming out. Um, and uh, yeah, we're getting some new listeners, getting lots of emails. But the robo-taxis aren't anywhere near close to be ready. Yet, we keep doing stupid things and putting them live in cities, including right now. So we put one in Pittsburgh, kill, you know, maim somebody. We put one in Arizona, kill somebody. We blame the driver who was being paid $25 an hour to sit up front um, because she was on her phone. But then there's a discrepancy in that story, and they couldn't have the court case in Maricopa County in Phoenix. So they moved her to the county next door. And actually, we should be hearing about all of that outcome here very shortly. But now in San Francisco, in the evenings, it's not during high traffic times and whatnot, but in the evenings, if you're out at the bars and whatnot, there's a window of time, and I'm not exactly sure when it is. I know for cruise, I I believe it's like um, 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. that they're allowed to run. Um, But here's the thing, guys. So I have been following this for a long time, and I don't know if you guys caught on about a month ago, but I was talking about it, and I didn't really get into it as far as maybe I should have. But, um, you know, like there's a there's an article out this week in um, San Francisco Standard. Uh, the title is we're go we're going to go homeless. San Francisco drivers fear the human cost of robo taxis. There's another one out on uh, SF Bayview um, driverless car company Waymo's attack on Uber and Lyft drivers in San Francisco is intensifying. Um, on uh, Tech Explore, San Francisco's race for robo taxis cleave sharp divide over safety so if you guys were if you guys didn't missed it or or didn't yeah didn't catch when i was talking about this so the state of california wants the autonomous in san francisco they're looking at la too i could pick on a lot of cities but let's just focus and i'm not trying to pick on san francisco either Um, but here's the deal san francisco i was under the impression like wow you know this this extremely open-minded town that I've been to many times. I've worked there doing production. I've been out there. I have friends who live in the Bay Area all over. Um, it's it's It used to be such a great place. I haven't been out there in quite some time now, um, or at least, you know, five, five six years maybe. But regardless, um, I was very shocked to hear that because it's very hilly. If, for those of you that been, have been there, you know that. Even if you haven't, you probably know that. It's one of the craziest hilly cities in the, in, in the country. Um, these cars are operating on specific routes. So sometimes it might not be the most direct route to take one of these, but here's the thing. I was under the impression that this open-minded city was all with open arms, bringing them in. Clearly that would involve these companies giving the city, um, money to be operating in there. I've been in the fight of, Hey, you're putting people at danger. You know, like I, I've said this a million times. I won't, get it i won't i won't spend time on it guys but i gotta keep mentioning it because it's in hopes that somebody out there in autonomous land hears this and i'm sure it's been thought of but this is very important um go take a portion of the arizona desert and build a small town and by that i don't mean you need to build real infrastructure it's not going to have to hold people or meet you know i mean clearly you'd have to have it secured the perimeter and make it pretty pretty large 
But it, it's, I mean, I'm not saying you could do cardboard because of weather and whatnot for the buildings, but you also don't have to have permits and, and a thousand workers putting together. I mean, you probably wouldn't need that many, but to make, you don't need every spec done correctly on buildings because this would be a personless fake city to try these autonomous. And my idea is to invite every autonomous company in the world to this stage that you would create, it doesn't have to be Arizona, wherever, and <clears throat> not only invite, but encourage them to come test their autonomous while your autonomous are running on the road. Because in a reality, let's face it, it's kind of an all or nothing situation. We've talked about this. Now, uh, partial autonomous, yeah, okay, and help steering, and, and, and you know, I remember the, you know, the Lexus that could park itself. And I know that features kind of, a lot of people are like, wait, you know, but I mean, that's kind of like those kind of autonomous features. Okay. But if you're going to be operating driverless cars, do it in a place where people don't live because there are so many issues. And I got to tell you, the city of San Francisco, I was amazed when I learned this, the police, the fire department, the mayor of San Francisco, businesses, um, most of the population, um, a lot of them just don't speak on it. But the ones who do, I was expecting to hear them go, yeah, we don't mind them. Or, yeah, it's a great way to get around. It makes me feel a little safer not you know, not having to worry about a driver. I, I expected to hear some weird stories. Really, every one of them, mayor, fire, police, and everybody else wants these things out of their city. So clearly, the first part I hit on, money's involved, clearly. But it seems to be going to the state of California, which is obviously allocating part of that money to San Francisco. However, I don't think it's about the money to San Francisco. I think they just want them out. And I think we need to get to a spot where they are out. Let's put them somewhere where people aren't and let them all go at it and test. You know, I mean, this is, it, it's just crazy to me. Like, uh, I understand that the state takes in money and whatnot, but again, you know, we got to remember this is the state. <laughs> I just got to say, it, you guys, this is a state that says that by 20, what is it, 2025 is a marker, 2028 and 2030. Um, 2025, 55% of the, um, or 50%, I can't remember what it is, of the, of the vehicles in California will be electric. Okay, guys, that's a year and a half from now. And there is not a chance. Because if you remember, I love this, I love saying it, um, Last summer, the governor told you guys to turn off your air conditioner, air conditioners, you were overloading the grid. How are you going to charge half of the people's cars in California with uh, EV chargers if you can't, if the, if the grid can't hold an air conditioner or a window air conditioner, anything? If you're, if you're giving warnings out about that, it's not going to withhold. I've always said... We need the infrastructure before the vehicles, or at least right alongside of it. You know, be building it out as you're building it out. And we've talked about this a few times too. I feel like we skipped right over hybrid. Yes, it was around for a long time and it still is, but why are we leaving it kind of to the side and pushing for full EV? I think we all understand electric vehicles come with um, a huge cost. We still need, we still need coal. We we still need uh power to power the the chargers. <laughs> so I know we need to get around all this, but it's not gonna be done overnight. We need to do this in steps and quit lying to the people. This is not happening tomorrow. 
This is not happening next week. This is not happening by 2025. It's just not. I can't tell you guys, when I started Rideshare and when I started the website, okay, so I started Rideshare in 2015, I started the website in 2017. It's been going that long now. In 2017, we were hearing about full autonomous Uber lifts by 2020. And I mean, I'm talking every paper, Bloomberg, um, Business Insider, um, New York Times, they were running these stories. Well, we're in 2023 and there's nowhere close to full autonomous. In fact, we know that an orange traffic cone can defeat an autonomous car. The LIDARs don't work in weather. Um, They have all kinds of issues. They're very expensive. But if you put a cone on the hood of the car, it can't go anywhere. That to me tells me fail. At least for now, we're way ahead of ourselves. Let's not even pretend it's not happening. Not yet. Um, but there's, you know, there's a lot of articles on rideshare Make sure you go there and check them out. I put up probably about nine last week. <clears throat> so go check them out, see what's up there that you guys might like. Um, that is going to move me into, I want to bring on, um, Mike Harubi. We're going to do just a little teaser piece together and, uh, and then, and then we'll, uh, I'll come back on the other side and we'll see what else we got time for today. But this is very important. It deals with what was known as the Rhode Island Horror Bill, a test run uh, for more states, experts warn. And I, want, I don't want to get into it right now. Let me bring Mike on and let's, let's talk about this a little bit. Like if an elevator broke down and you and I were stuck in it for three minutes and you only had a couple minutes to explain the Rhode Island thing to me in the most simplest of terms, how how would you do that? Uh, all right. It, the um, There's an enormous amount of fact behind and everything I say, but it's, it's not going into the three minutes. Basically, Rhode Island unions drive all Rhode Island labor law bills. Okay. They 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 write them elsewhere. They give them to the legislators, um, and the legislators do what they're told, which is submit them, defend them, and then pass them. Wait, what? They, what do you mean? What do you mean they write them elsewhere? The unions, the unions do the writing. Oh, I, I see so, what you're saying. Yes, yes. In other words, Representative Steve Johnson doesn't write them. They no, he gets right. one. No, he gets one from somebody in in the union that he knows well and they say here's here's your here's your bill submit it and so they're just they're just functionaries of the union who are also paid to be legislators so there's a huge conflict of interest but we're not talking conflict of interest at the moment so they had the unions tried three different bills this year and they won two of them and they're horrible the one that didn't pass was inserting the ABC test in all Rhode Island state labor laws. So <laughs> you can, we all know what that would have led to. Would it, sh- would, it, would it have been the ABC test or this new six-prong one? No, it would have been the ABC, ABC test. The chatter in the legis- in the legislature was we want it just like Massachusetts has it. <laughs> and that that was the California one and that was the PRO Act one. So. Yeah. Okay, so that failed, and I'm I am in the act this week of finding out why it failed. But you, you we can guess b- between us. Yeah. The second thing is that they 
uh, voted on and passed and the governor signed what we'll call a felony misclassification bill. Now, this is these two bills are just terrifying, but they're terrifying to different audiences. Right. I I saw the one that said, what, 1,500 to 5,000 with imprisonment potential. Yep. And three years. Now, one tip, they, they, they had six different things they did. I'll only go into one. The unit of crime is the, is the buyer's standard payroll period. So if you were to do a marketing, you know, contract for marketing work as a buyer, in other words, you're a little company and you want some market research on whatever, um, the, the period in which you, you commit a felony is could commit a felony is the pay period. And, and every time your payroll clicks over, you enter a new penalty period. So if you did a three-month project, which for marketing and software and a lot of other things, um, even physical therapy, that's a new felony. So you just think about everything we say. That, that could be in a three-month period, that could be seven felonies, you know, at three years each and 5,000 each. So this terrifies, absolutely intimidates clients. And and it should terrify the employers. Yes, right? Because, you know, it's, it's going to get worse for everybody. So that's the second bill. That's now state law. And, and it, it, this thing came in the night. There's a reason for this when I'm done with my three-minute speech. <laughs> um, anyway, so that intimidates the clients. Never buy. Can you imagine some woman who's got a marketing firm, and if she's accused of you know this, she could have a, a fel- like she could have 30 felonies if she's got a couple of staffers sure. on her hand. She's got kids at home. She's working part time. She's employing employing uh, employing part time people. She is. She's just felonies all over the place. She. Every advisor will say, "Don't do it. Don't do it." And she's then she's basically out of business. All right. The third horror, also this is in law, is this attempt to intimidate independent contractors and drivers and moms and the disabled. Again, you have to file a form per year per client. And you have to identify yourself in great detail, um, even though all the data the state needs to identify you and your clients, they already have through the 1099 NEC, not elsewhere classified, and 1099 miscellaneous. It's a completely redundant effort. It also asks for your age, which they don't need to know, that it, you know, and they they don't need to know your name and your name and address on a public of publicly, you know, re, public information form. It's just not right. I, I was going to say, isn't there? Isn't I thought there was a law against this that you can't have people because because of intimidation, you can't have people's information out there. Well, the state of Rhode Island apparently. <laughs> hasn't read that law, although that's my recollection very clearly too. So um, uh, I will we'll we'll get to this. There's there's so much other badness. <laughs> anyway, those are the three horrors, 
and two of them are in law, and they're perfectly capable now of driving everyone out of independent contracting, buying or selling in Rhode Island. Yeah, see, I, I was that's I, I can't remember again who it was, but it was a gig worker, and somebody was saying because they actually they brought it up to me, which I thought was interesting because I had already been, I had already read your piece, I had already looked at a couple other things, and I was like, whoa. And then they brought it up to me and they're like, yep, yeah, that would never affect me because I'm the worker. I'm like, but if the employer is afraid to give you work, there's no work. Right. That's that's the whole thing with the way the Fair Labor Standards Act set this up in 1938 is they 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 keep you out of court by preventing the buyer. The buyer's not going to go to court to get his, you know, to be able to buy services from you. That won't happen. Mm-hmm. So um, but the. Um, the thing is, I think this is a, a, I think it's a major drafting mistake is I think they forgot, Steve, that the original purpose of the, the uh, writing the Fair Labor Standards Act the way they did was to keep the independent contractor out of court because they make very uh, sympathetic witnesses in court. They're women. They're people with a profession that people admire, like doctors or scientists. They are trying to just get ahead and pay their bills and use, you know, do all the things that everybody on the jury wants to do, too. And so they, the unions did not want them in court. And they have their people in the uh, plaintiff's attorney telling, don't let these people into court. They're going to win every time. But this time they made a mistake by a specific requirement of the uh, to fill out these forms and get intimidated and violate your own privacy. So I think they're going to have litigation about this, and I think they're going to wind up either having the bill taken back or um, what they'll lose in court, or you know something will happen, or they'll or they'll pull it because the damage is coming and they don't want to. That they don't want to lose a court case and get a precedent. Well, Mike, let me let me ask you this: you, you I'm sure you saw in the news about the. Um, I, th- I I can't remember how every newspaper words it because they've got their spin, but it's like uh, you know Uber drivers win in California because they're now allowed to take Uber to court. I'm sure. Oh. Have you have you seen this? It's everywhere. No, I haven't. I haven't seen it. Okay, well, it's, you know, one of the things of Prop 22 was that you still had to, you you still, you were giving up your right to protest that you, and that you couldn't, uh, you couldn't, um, you know, I don't know, there, it was one of the littler things that now they're taking back and saying, now you can take these companies to court. So, in your opinion, from what you just said, wouldn't that be, a is, so, I don't list. I can't read. It's like clickbait. I can't read the title of an article and even know what it means anymore. But like, how do you? I know you haven't seen it yet, but um, how do? How would you reflect on that? Like, do you think that's a win? If the because to me, I was thinking, what Uber driver has five to ten thousand dollars to cough up on an attorney just to lose? Yes, I. I don't see the connection between that example uh, in in California and this particular one of revealing the privacy of individuals. No, no, no. I was I, I just got a little sidetracked when you said I was just curious because it was all over the news last week. I thought you would have seen it. It was a yeah. big it was a big loss. I mean, it was a big loss to the to the um, Flex Association, which is Uber, Lyft, Instacart, DoorDash. Right. 
Um, and they're the one, you know, Flex Associations, what fights in Massachusetts and every state now, they are the Flex Association. So I didn't understand like how, I, I guess I don't understand. I know we're a little sidetracked here, but how that even would be a win though. Like they made it sound like, hey, drivers, you just won huge. And there's people like cheering about it. And I'm going, what is the win? I don't get what the win is. Uh, that that sounds like chin music. I I, I don't see it. Uh, people people who drive for Uber and are real, yeah, re- really like it. They have negotiation dispute, disputes, but you know, uh, when you have a little guy and a big guy, that's that's routine. Right. And uh, suing suing the guy you work for is not necessarily the road to uh, amicable relations down you know downstream. Right, because the agreement in every state and the what you click when you agree to drive for Uber is that that you that you'll go through arbitration or whatever. It, it takes away your right to sue. Right that that is um, that arbitration bill is not a bad thing. Okay, it's, arbitration is much cheaper as a general rule, and it's it's much less manipulatable. Um, not in all cases, it's not, but generally most parties who get into a dispute, get into it for reasons that, that they didn't, they they didn't intend on causing them. It was just a, yeah, no. And I, I already see like, look, I know people who have, I know people who have been wrongfully deactivated, but I know people who have been deactivated that I would have deactivated. Right. And all I think that's going to come of this kind of thing is, although none of them have the money to do it, but I believe all that would come of it is people challenging wrongful deactivation when they got deactivated because they yelled at a customer for a tip. Right. I I, um, I had an Uber driver in D.C. And, um, man, these guys know more about their business than the typical dentist does, I'll tell you. And he said that he said he, he, he likes he makes a lot of money with with Uber, and he he likes driving. He likes the people, you know, the typical stuff everybody says. Um, he doesn't like when they change the terms of the contract without talking to him. Anybody would. No. You know, if you had a contract with a snowplow guy or a lawnmower guy or a painter, and he all of a sudden he says, "I'm changing the contract, and I'm not going to come until January to paint your house." Well, you know, like that's not going to work here, pal. Yeah. And, you know, but, but when you're Uber and you're $50 billion of valuation, or I mean, it's much more now, but I mean, you, you've got money in your pocket. It might make right in, you know, in court and other things. So I, that's one of those things where I, I'm not quite sure why Uber's doing it this way, but I'm not being critical. I'm just saying I got questions that I don't have answers for, just like, just like this one. Yeah, no, when we're off the call, I'll send you one of the articles that I was reading. Just maybe you could like even text me back just your take on it. Like why? Why 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 would anybody why would this help anybody? But I know they've been fighting for it for a while and now they got it and I saw like on some socials them cheering about it and I'm like, okay, but now what? Like I'm waiting for anybody to post this is great. Now I can do this. Like it it to me it means nothing. It did nothing. And and the salting is a big issue. So those may be salts who are just told to, you know, get this passed. Now it's time to, you know, who hurrah, hurray, and all that. Yeah. So it, it's a 
This is all Kabuki theater as far okay, as the unions go. I'll put us back on track now. So back to Rhode Island. <laughs> okay. So I did a little, finishing up my three minutes, I did a little research online this morning. Okay. Uh, thinking of this. And I, because this, this bill, these bills, plural, proceeded through the House and the Senate in Rhode Island with just zero info. It just, it was like a black box. Nothing came out of it. And we looked at the uh, biggest 100 uh, employers in Rhode Island. And if you do this, anybody can do it. You're going to get a list of the total employment of each of those companies. So CBS is at top of the list. Rhode Island is a very small state with a very small economy with very few large employers and very few large industries. So I, that so, was a question I was going to, is that, I mean, I know I felt like it was a stupid question, but is that why Rhode Island, are they doing it because, okay, this has the least amount of people let's try it here. Yes. And it's, it's the, it's the one they control the most, I think. Like okay. even Massachusetts has, has, um, uh, my understanding is that Massachusetts, it hasn't gotten worse here because, Massachusetts actually depends on the independent contracting income that the state earns from giant independent contracting using uh, businesses like defense, medical research, universities, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals. Those are big businesses and they they need expertise all the time. So the state, Massachusetts takes very good care of its industry. And Rhode Island, not so much. Anyway, long story short, we went through, we, we, we took the normal participation rate in independent contracting for the, the national level, uh, which is 63 million people and out of 158 million workers or 40%. And we applied it to Rhode Island's workforce of 569,000 people. And it turns out that self-employment is bigger than all the independent contracting. Let me let just let me get this right. Then all the um, it's forty percent as big as the total corporate employment of all the big one hundred firms. And when you start going down the list, you realize, oh, most of these people are operating outside the state and their numbers don't show up. They're much smaller than this stupid list that I can't use for this purpose. Hmm. So basically, when it comes right down to it, whatever number you use for the percentage rate contracting, independent contracting in Rhode Island, it's the biggest employer in the state. And Rhode Island just torpedoed it okay i don't think they know that yet i don't think that fact has come to anybody's mind i don't think the unions would want to catch that fish i don't think the legislators can survive having done that what are they going to do with 150,000 people out of work in rhode island i mean they're either going to move, Steve, or they're going to – worse to the state is they're going to just ignore the law, you know, go catch me. And you can't – they have a diehard uh, anti-business individual who runs the Department of Revenue. He's going to try to 
get somebody's, you know, and get their goose and um, there's just going to be hell to pay. And not only that, national national freelancers, if they if they tackled this as, as a team, tackled Rhode Island and made a case out of the different people who published the bill and passed the bill and, you know, pushed back on on them from their national, you know, protected nationally position. Sure. Rhode Island couldn't withstand it. There aren't there isn't any other place to work in Rhode Island. So then then you've lost the either the individual moves out or they just go to Connecticut or Massachusetts for work. You know, how successful was that? If you guys want to hear the rest of that interview, uh, you can go to patreon.com backslash rideshare rodeo and become a member. Um, there is a lot of changes happening over there. I've had the Patreon for a while. Um, thank you to all my Patreon members. We're going to start doing a shout out here on the audio podcast about that. And uh, yeah, I want to thank the ones who are there, but really looking to finally grow it. You know, with the way all these platforms operate, it's almost like gig apps. You could be deactivated or your channel could be tore down or you're this or that or the other. In the audio podcast world, um, you know, we're pretty safe. You can speak your mind. It's it's still an open platform. Um, I'm sure there's some hosting uh, um, audio podcast hosts that maybe watch what you say, but maybe not. I don't even know. Actually, I don't know that for sure. Mine happens to be very good. Mine lets me... Um, Mine lets me, uh, you know, talk about any subject matter I want. They've never really had an issue with that. And I don't think most audio podcasts do. But that's the same with the Patreon page, too. There's sometimes I'm talking about things. I don't want to get into them because I'm afraid. And it's not swearing or talking about things that should get your content taken down. In fact, a lot of things that potentially, and you know, we can all think of things that should get content taken down. Some of them are very obvious. Um, to each his own, but those sometimes are overlooked. What they're really looking at is a lot of this political stuff. And it's like saying the wrong word can get your stuff taken down. But even the, some of the people who say the what they consider a wrong word or a person they don't want referred to kind of thing, sometimes it's done in the light where they're actually not praising the person and just somehow the algorithm catches it and it says, hey, they're doing this, um, you know, lock it down. And it's it just it's so crazy to me. Like why, you know, we've had freedom of press forever. So like if, you know, if you want to make a channel and I'm not talking about the tweaked out rules they change every day now ever since um, you know, a few years back, but it was moving at a correct rate, you know. If you want to talk about things go ahead. If you if you draw an audience and you're not, you know, you're not there's no children in the video, the kind of things they ask us creators when we're doing it. You know, you're not talking about, you know, you're not talking about harming yourself. There's no sex or drugs or, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, if you want to have that, that's fine. Those are pretty basic 101 rules. But don't, like, have keywords that that AI catches and goes, oh, that, that needs to go. He said the, he said this, and that's a politician's name. It's, it's just ridiculous. But regardless, please go check out the Patreon page. Um, Give me a lot of content going on there, so <clears throat> including the full piece Rhode Island Horror. So go check it out, um, you guys. So let's let's we got a little bit of time here left. Uh, let's let's talk about um, the FTC. So the FTC. This is by the way. This we talked about this a while back, 
And I was telling you guys that the FTC is an agency to be watching. Um, and then I was reminded of it by a friend today, actually. And we haven't talked about it in about three weeks. And I was reminded on social media by a friend that lives here in my market, um, who I talk with, who I've met with in person. We've done podcasts together. Um, and then we've even just, you know, gone out for a drink or to play some golf. I mean, we're, we're, we're pretty good friends. So he kind of reminded me of something like, hey, did you, what about this? And I'm like, yeah, for, we haven't talked about that in a while, but I have hit on it. So I want to talk to you guys. This is, a, this is the FTC, and the link is in the show notes, guys. But this is the FTC's website, the, the real FTC, the Federal Trade Commission .org, the real website. This is what it says, um, FTC policy statement, and it's regarding established consumer protection and competition principles apply to gig companies. Now, this is on their page. I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, all the story links obviously can be find, found on Rideshare Rodeo. You guys know that, but I always need to say that, including this one. So whether you're a gig worker work at a business uh, that relies on gig work or enjoy the benefits of their labor. The FTC has a policy statement about the gig economy that merits your attention. There's no, and remember, the rule change starts on October 1st. Okay, so that's when that's when gig economy stuff is really going to come into play. We already, we just talked, had a little clip of the mic piece. It's already happening in Rhode Island and they're kind of basing it on ABC test and on... Um, and on the new rule change, even though it's not in place, it was supposed to be May, but now it's October 1st. So there's no denying that the gig economy has grown exp exponentially, with 16% of Americans reporting that they earn money through gig the gig economy. By the way, guys, that is 16% of Americans earning through the app-based gig economy. It's very confusing, I know, but until we get another title for, for app-based platform gig work, we have to remember that freelancers, self-employed, business owners, um, writers, um, cartoonists, musicians, interpreters, uh, truck drivers, uh, I mean, just hundreds of people, uh, hundreds of professions um, are, you know, are traditional independent contractors. So this 16% doesn't reflect that because really the number's up to about 63 to 65 million approximately now, um, Americans who work in the gig economy space. That was about 58 million. Um, and that means that one, 58 or around there was about one third of our workforce was working in there. And now we've seen in the past uh, two and a half years that it's gone from 58, 59 to 63 to 65 million. So we're at about 35% of our workforce now, which matches Mike's numbers about Rhode Island, but nationwide that's working in the gig economy, traditional and app-based. But we'll move back to this. I digress. We'll move back to this. A Federal Reserve study estimates that gig workers account for hundreds of billions of dollars in economic activity each year. What's more, as, notice, as noted in a recent FTC staff report, many gig workers come from communities of color. The FTC policy statement on enforcement related to gig work begins with the fundamental fundamental principle that American workers deserve fair, honest, and competitive labor markets, quote unquote. 
After outlining a number of the issues that gig workers may face, including deceptive claims about pay hours, unfair contract terms, and anti-competitive wage fixing and coordination between gig app companies, which is data sharing. We all know about that. We've talked about this many times. The statement makes it clear that while gig companies have seen unique established principles of consumer protection and competition still apply to them, Here's another here's another uh, key takeaway. The principle holds true regardless of how companies choose to classify the people who work for them. So again, I'll let you guys go in and look at this. It's not the longest article. Link will be in the show notes. Aside from the Rideshare Rodeo link, and I'll put a direct link to the FTC's page that I'm referring to here. And then the the final paragraph is the policy statement points out to a number of areas where the FTC will aim to prevent harm to consumers. You'll want to read the document for details. But here are three examples. Holding companies accountable for their claims and conduct about gig workers' costs and benefits. So so what benefits are we afforded and what are our expenses and costs to run our businesses as gig workers? Um, I don't know about you guys. That's W-2 stuff right there. Um, if you want benefits and you're an independent contractor, traditionally or gig, you need to get those yourself. I mean, in California, Prop 22, which came, which came as a um, you know a semi life draft to the destruction of AB5, um, maybe it has some benefits. But from what I've talked to people, like the medical side of that, I know that it has some money stuff with 120 percent of the uh, minimum wage in whatever. Wherever you are in California, it's that. But the benefits as far as like medical and stuff like that, I got to tell you guys, like the uh, Obamacare marketplace has much better deals than getting stipend through the gig app companies and using them because they're giving you bulk rate policies that the gig companies buy. They're giving you deal like deals on those, but really those come out to a little more than um than you know than Obamacare or the 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 health uh marketplace if you want to call it whatever but you can get a better deal if you search on marketplace than you can through these companies you know you might think that you might look at it cuz we know we know how they work come on guys you know it's like hey this was $400 but it's only 150 if you work on our platform a month okay well i can go get great insurance through um the CARES Act or, or through the uh, Obamacare um, marketplace, you know, that's it, especially like if you're in your 30s and 40s, you can go get like that and get a really much better policy that isn't reliant at all on what work you do at all. So why wouldn't you pay less? The stipend isn't even helping you enough. It's it, You're still going to pay more out of your pocket. It just sounds fun. <laughs> um, but let me let me finish up with this. You'll want to read the document in details, um, holding companies accountable for their claims and conduct about gig work, costs and benefits, combating unlawful practices and constraints imposed on gig workers, and policing unfair methods of competition that harm gig workers. We're seeing a lot of states move to non-competes. This ties into that a little bit. As this statement explains, protecting these workers from unfair, deceptive, and anti-competitive practice 
practices is a priority, and the Federal Trade Commission will use its full authority to do so. So, you guys, um, I don't know if you caught all that, but that's... I'm going to put the link in the show notes. It's it's all about gig work, and this has been there for a while. They've tweaked it out a couple times. There's some links that can take you to the policy statement or the FTC policy statement, FTC staff report. They're all in here, but I'll put the direct link for you guys. And then... Where are we at? Okay, I got enough time maybe to... Let me see. I at least want to touch on this um, because I think it's uh, I think it's important. If you guys aren't familiar, we've talked about Julie Sue before. I'm not going to jump into it. It's not, it's not worth it. She still is not approved to be Secretary of Labor for the country. I won't get into her history in California. As I've told you guys many times, go Google it for yourself. I don't want to be... I don't want people saying, oh, he's just bagging on it. I want you to go look for yourself. Go look at, go go Google Julie Sue, um, California Labor Secretary, and see what you learn. You're going to see maybe a couple of decent articles and then a ton of bad. <laughs> so, but now Biden, the, the Biden administration truly wants her to be in this position. However, both sides of the aisles will not confirm her. And if I'm if I'm correct, you have 60 days to confirm your Secretary of Labor nominee. Now, Marty Walsh, who was the Secretary of Labor, left in late March to go be um, to go to go be the union boss for the National Hockey League, the NHL. Um, clearly, there's a lot more money there and a lot less headaches. So he's going to do that, or he is doing that. That put Julie Sue into a temporary position. That temporary position can only be held for 60 days, meaning at the end of May 2023, two months, almost two months ago, she had to be confirmed by vote. And she cannot still to this day be confirmed. And there are articles out that are saying, you know, Joe Biden's attempt to bypass the Senate. I mean, Politico. Politico, which normally leans left, you know, and you'd think that uh, you'd think that it, you know it's not going to dog on her too hard or on on the administration. It put out an article. Was it yesterday, July twenty fourth? Yeah, yesterday. Uh, Biden Biden's leaving Julie Sue at labor, and already business groups are challenging her authority, and both sides of the aisle are. He has literally came out and said, "Listen, if we can't get her elected, I'm just going to leave her there." Now, I'm sure there's lawyers looking into this, but that is a huge decision for one man, even POTUS, to make. And it's not his decision. You know, what is he trying to do? I, we all, look, none of us know for certain. Who knows? But I do have a theory on it. I believe that he is trying to leave her there and see if she can make it to the end of his term even. Because this, it will take lawyers and fights and stuff to get this overturned. What the most important thing is right now while she is in the temporary position and that the fact that we've gone past the the temporary terms where she can even be in that position at this point until she can be confirmed she she should no longer be temporary. She should be removed because they can't agree on her. Nobody. They just nobody likes her. Um even the people who will give her a vote are kind of um you know, they're they're getting their um they're getting their campaigns a little padded by groups to like even because even you know people on left right whatever but they might be saying like Julie Sue really I'm not gonna vote for her but then they get you know their three biggest donors to their campaign saying 
oh, well, you are going to vote for her because we're, we're telling you you're going to vote for her. So there are some people who are just kind of like in that state voting for her, but there's nobody who's like, oh my gosh, I cannot wait. This is this is the best Secretary of Labor uh, for federal elect ever. Because if it was, she would have been nominated in April early when Marty Walsh left or mid-April or late April or in May or in or in June after the time expired to do it. Now it's July. Look, guys, it's four months that she's been in there and it's there's no progress being made. They are not going to confirm her to be Secretary of Labor. And this should concern you if you're saying, why does he keep talking about this? This is important because this should concern you. This is... This is the president of the United States, I don't care which party it is, saying, well, I'm not going to follow that rule or that law. We're, gonna, we're just going to leave her in there. Okay, well, then at least at the bare minimum, we have to have oversight on her, and she cannot be making any decisions until she's elected. My thought there is that if they did that, if they could get the Senate to impose, like, Make the make the law that already exists saying she needs to go because she can't be confirmed. But if we could get them to say, listen, you know, she can't make any decisions. She can't make this rule change. She can't be part of the rule change October 1st because she's going to be a nightmare to this and uh, gig workers, both traditional and app-based platform workers. But here's the thing. Um, she needs to go. She needs to go. She needs to go. Um and she is as pro-union as the administration itself. So she, in a perfect world, the administration is picking Julie Sue because they want to see all of us be union workers. Again, I know some people take it as, I'm some union hater. I'm not. Look, I just believe in fairness, and I don't want to spend a good portion of my money on unions. Not right now. We're in a recession. Not with inflation, but that's not even the reason. Even if we weren't in a recession, even if inflation wasn't high, I don't want to spend my money on a union. Because here's my thing. Unions might be able to help solve some like, you know, healthcare um, issues. Like, hey, this health plan isn't good enough. Okay, they might be able to get in there and help you a little. But here's my thing. If you're really having them go to bat, like look at Amazon Flex or look at um, uh, look at uh, UPS right now. It's going to be striking next week. Next week, when this podcast drops, very likely UPS will be striking. However, they've already outsourced enough through the apps, Rody, all this other stuff, that, yeah, it'll put a little strain on it, but there's a lot of workers looking forward to taking this work. So, you know, you're going to be without pay for a while and whatnot. So I'm all for it if it's an opt-in thing. And I'm not saying auto-opt-in. Like, if you take a job... And they say, hey, now, do you want to be part of the union? You'd have these protections, and you would be paid this much less, but you'd have some medical, and you'd have these protections, blah, 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 whatever about the union. And then, or you could take a little more money, and you could do this yourself, and, you know, if if they strike. That way, if they strike, I'm not saying that you need to be the person sitting inside, because clearly, if a strike comes to the point the pay has gotten so bad that even you yourself are probably going to feel it. But are you wanting to go strike for one, two, four, eight, twelve weeks without pay? I know twelve is a little far, but like anywhere up to ten. I mean, can you do with like let's even say four or five? Can you do without four or five weeks of pay in a row if a union official said we're on strike today? Let's go. 
My answer clearly would be no. Um, but regardless, I'm all for it if it's you can opt in. Because here's the thing, if I saw a strike coming and I worked, like let's say, with UPS and I agree with the people striking, let's say, even like, yeah, this pay sucks and our medical sucks, um, you guys should strike. It's not like I'm going to sit inside and still work under these horrible conditions. I'm going to quit and move along. But that's the independent contractor in me. Some people love to be a W-2. Some people love unions. And this all comes to, as I wrap this up, the reason why you need to be in, if you're in Denver or within 100 miles of it on August 5th, come and check out the town hall, Para and Rideshare Rodeo, myself, um, and Stephanie Vigil, we will all be there talking about all of this legislation stuff and what we can do. And it will be live streamed on Rideshare Rodeo YouTube channel. So please check it out. If you can't, if you can't join us in person, join us on the live stream. You will not regret it. It's going to be something different that you've never seen before. Um, well, guys, we have ran out of time, and that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. See you back here next week. Until then, earn smart and be safe. Peace, y'all.